Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Will you please be seated? So I just got back yet last night from our men's retreat. A bunch of our guys are up at Camp Canuga, not far from Hendersonville, enjoying a few days there. I was sad to leave early, but I did have time, and Frank Taylor wanted me to share this with you, uh, to win the pickleball tournament. So just a heads up that that did happen, and it was Frank who requested that I say that, and it was not for my own ego, I promise you. But besides my own ego, I do have another problem. And you might think, well, Jonathan, you have lots of problems. But (laughs) the problem that I particularly want to focus on today is I have a problem in that I like to take good things and to turn them into ultimate things. To take good things and to turn them into ultimate things. And this has been a pattern for my whole life. So these are, remember, good things. So, for instance, sports. I've always loved sports. And as a child, I had sports heroes. Anyone here have any sporting heroes? Anyone in particular you want to mention? Any names? Who? Derek Jeter, there you go, there's one. Anyone else? Michael Jordan. Connor Shaw. Connor Shaw, Connor Shaw. wow, there you go. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I had a hero called Ian Botham. None of you will have heard of him. He was a cricket player, that's why. And, oh, and by the way, England won the Cricket World Cup today. I should let you know that. Um, anyway, Ian Botham was an amazing cricket player, and I wanted to be Ian Botham when I grew up. He was, you know, a great guy, I thought, anyway. But of course, Ian Botham, he went through some trials. Let's just put it that way. You can look him up yourself. And he crashed and he burned. And eventually, of course, he retired from his career. It came to an end. Well, besides sports, I wanted to be really good in my education. I wanted to do well in my education. And I decided that the place I needed to go was to Oxford. Because in England, you know, the Ivy League is really just two places. It's Oxford or it's Cambridge, okay? And so I applied to go to Oxford and I, I studied hard and I applied for a choral scholarship there because I thought that would help me get in. And I actually got a choral scholarship to sing in the cathedral there. But I didn't get the academic scholarship. And so I crashed and I burned in that front as well. That good thing had become an ultimate thing and it was devastating to me. But I recovered from that and I decided that I would focus on my career next and that I would be really good in my career. My career ended up being youth ministry at that time. And I didn't just want to be a good youth minister in my church. I wanted to be a youth minister who was known across England. And so I started to write articles. I started to train people. I started to write books even about youth ministry. And then the Lord said, well, I want you to go to America where no one's going to know you. And so even that good thing that I'd made into an ultimate thing, which was not a good thing, that crashed and burned as well, because here nobody cared who Jonathan Bennett was. It's a problem I have to take good things and to turn them into ultimate things. But guess what? I don't think I'm the only one who has that problem. I think if you're probably honest and you search the depths of your heart, you realize that you too in your life have taken good things and turned them into ultimate things. Whether it's sports, whether it's education, whether it's a career, perhaps it's a relationship that you've been in. Maybe it's entertainment of some kind or another. Whatever it might be, we all take good things and turn them into ultimate things. And what do they say about good things? All good things must what? Yeah, all good things must come to an end, and they do. Even great sports dynasties, great romances, great bands, great careers, they all come to an end. And only something that is truly ultimate survives. 
And we'll come back to that later. But you see, we're a short-sighted people. We don't see very far in front of ourselves, do we? So we tend to look towards the temporal. That's what we can see around us, okay, what we can touch and feel. We don't tend to focus so much on the eternal, the things that might last forever. And so we struggle not to turn good things into ultimate things, not to look for life in places that will actually all just pass away, things that will let us down over and over again. And as we'll see in our reading today, nothing lasts forever apart from Jesus. And nothing can give life beyond a relationship with Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. And so we are called to follow him whatever the cost. And in this passage, we'll hear that Jesus gives us assurance that he will be with us as we do that. So let's turn to our gospel reading. We're in Luke chapter 21. You can find it on the scripture sheet if you want to follow along or on the screens or open up your Bible app on your phone. Or if you brought a Bible, open that up and turn to Luke 21. And we're in a passage that's called the Olivet Discourse. It happens on the Mount of Olives or near the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is teaching in the temple. And where it begins really is Jesus on Palm Sunday. We're actually in Holy Week. It's kind of out of order in some ways to be in November and Holy Week. But we're in Holy Week. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and they've crowned him as king, right? They've hailed him as the king, the one who's come to save them, hopefully from the Romans. But they've kind of got that wrong. And Jesus starts to teach them in the temple and he starts to share with them things that they don't like to hear. And the religious leaders decide they're going to plot, they're going to kill him. And Jesus knows this. He knows that by the end of the week, he's not going to be a king on a throne somewhere on earth. He's going to be dead and in the ground. He knows that he's going to die. Well, into the midst of that, he teaches, and he teaches his disciples. And so he's preparing them for what's to come. But what are they focusing on? They're focusing on the temporal, what they can see, not on the eternal. If you look at the very first verse, you see that. And while some of them were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said. They're focusing on what they can see, which is this incredible temple. I mean, if you've been to Jerusalem, the temple is no longer there, but the space where it was is, and it's a huge space. It's said of the temple courts that they could hold 400,000 people. 400,000 people. And I've been to Jerusalem, and I can imagine that. I mean, it's hard to imagine 400,000 people, but the space is big enough that it could do that. And the temple itself in the middle is huge. And it wasn't just that it was huge, it was beautiful, especially over the last 80 years or so before Jesus speaks. Herod has taken the time to adorn this temple and to make it look even more, more beautiful. It's been there probably five or 600 years, but he's decided it's time to refurbish the temple. Josephus, who was a historian who lived at the time, not a Christian, but a non-believer, but someone who wrote at that time said this, because he had seen the temple. He said this, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays 
to approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance. And remember, Jerusalem's on a hill, so the temple was at the pinnacle of that. You could see it all around. It appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon it and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. They're about the size of a bus. That's how big these stones are. I mean, this thing was impressive. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. So it's no surprise you, you can forgive the disciples to look at it and going, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. But Jesus wants to let them know something. He wants to teach them, and so he takes the time to do that. And so what he does is he redirects their focus in this fairly shocking way, or something that would have been shocking to Jewish ears. He tells them it's going to be destroyed. Look at verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. To a Jewish person, this would have been terrible news. The temple, the center of worship, the center of life for them, the place where they would come at least three times a year to worship the Lord, he's saying it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. But you see, Jesus knows that nothing lasts forever, not even the temple. And actually, only about 40 years later in 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed and torn down. But you'd think that the Jews of all people would know that nothing lasts forever. Because guess what? This was the second temple, not the first temple. I don't know if you know that, but the first temple was built a thousand years before by Solomon. And it wasn't as beautiful as this one, but still it was the temple. But that was torn down about three or four hundred years later when they went into exile. This one was then rebuilt about 70 years after that. And had been there for about 600 years. But they knew that nothing lasts forever. So it shouldn't have been too surprising. But the thing is, as humans, we're always trying to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We hope that something temporal will last forever, that we can put our trust in it, we can put our faith in it. I ran across a story about a Japanese warlord called Hideyoshi who ruled over Japan in the late 1500s. And to, to show his, I guess, his strength, he he determined that they would build or he commissioned a colossal statue of Buddha for a shrine in Kyoto. You know, it took 50,000 men five years to build this thing. That's how big this thing was. But the work had scarcely been completed when the earthquake of 1596 brought the roof of the shrine crashing down and wrecked the statue. And in a rage, Hideyoshi took a bow and arrow for some reason and shot an arrow at this fallen colossus. And he said, I put you here at great expense and you can't even look after your own temple. Even this massive construction had fallen down. You see, nothing lasts forever. And Jesus is trying to tell the disciples this. But not only this, they then want to find out, of course, well, when's it going to be over? When's it going to happen? When will the end of the world come? Not just the temple come crashing down. They think that's the end of the world. That's not going to be the end of the world. When's it actually going to come to an end? You see, they don't doubt his words it's going to happen. They've been with him long enough to realize that when Jesus says something's going to happen, it happens. But they want to know when. And Jesus answers them, but he doesn't give them really, a, I would say, a specific answer. He gives them an answer of a sort. Verses 8 through 11. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, 
and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So he's explaining to them that there are going to be earthquakes. There are going to be wars. There are going to be famines. There are going to be diseases, even pandemics. Does it sound familiar to anyone? We've been through all these things, right? And yet still the world hasn't come to an end. And his point is that you are living in the end times. <laughs> From the time that I leave you until the time I return, this are the end times. The signs that these are the end times are all there for you to look at. The world is groaning under the weight of its dis- own destruction. It's, it's actually really um, struggling. But I'm going to return one day. I may not tell you now. I don't even know myself. But my Father in heaven does know. Well, then he goes on and he explains to them that in that time, it's not going to be easy. Now, when I was first out of seminary, I took a job at the cathedral downtown, our Anglican cathedral down on Cumming Street. And one of my jobs was to do pastoral visits. As a young seminarian, I would go visit people who were shut-ins and take them communion and just sit with them and talk with them. Well, there was this one older lady called Thelma who lived downtown South Abroad. She was a wonderful South Abroad lady. She was a Charlestonian. I mean, she was not from off. She was one of those ladies who's lived there all her life in this, this wasn't an elaborate home, but it was a pretty home that she lived in. And I'll go visit Thelma and she would share stories from her life. Well, Thelma was starting to get dementia. And so as I went, she would share the same stories over and over. But I loved hearing this one thing she would say over and over again. And it's stuck with me ever since. She would say that her grandma, when she was growing up, well, Thelma would share, I've been through struggles in my life. I've not had an easy life. And she hadn't, to be fair. And she said, but she would remember that her grandma had told her this phrase when she was a child. Life isn't going to be a bed of roses. It's not all a bed of roses, right? And she would say that over and over again. And it's stuck with me ever since. And I think how many of us as Christians come to Jesus and then we start to wonder, well, why am I suffering now? I'm following you, Jesus. I'm doing what you asked me to do. But Jesus never promises a Christian that life's going to be a bed of roses. So when we suffer, we shouldn't be surprised. It, it shouldn't shake our faith. It should actually reassure us that we're probably doing exactly the right thing at the right time. Because Jesus promises, if there's anything Christians can expect, it's opposition, it's persecution, it's betrayal, it's being hated. These are the things we should expect. Bad things are going to happen. And he talks about that in verses 12 through 11. Even verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's not a bed of roses, is it, following Jesus? Even your own family will turn against you. But it's funny, even in the midst of this, I don't know if you caught what he says, but he tells them that this is going to be an opportunity for them to testify. It's going to be an opportunity for them to actually share their faith with others. In the midst of the suffering, don't be dwelling on the suffering. Be thinking, how can I share my faith with people? How can I share the good news of the gospel? And the good news is that I will give you the words. Many of us, when it comes to sharing the gospel or sharing our faith, think, well, I could never do that. I don't know what I would say. I'll stumble over my words. But in the midst of this passage, we see Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to give you the words by his spirit to speak when opportunities come. And so we can trust him that we will know what to say. 
Well, in the very last part, I think the phrase that best sums up the last couple of verses is live strong. Live strong. Anyone heard that phrase before? Yeah, remember who that's associated with? Sporting hero, right? Crashed and burned, right? Lance Armstrong, for those of you who don't know, was a guy who won the Tour de France many times. And then he went through testicular cancer and these yellow bracelets that said live strong became famous because he pressed through and he beat cancer. But in the midst of all this, we discovered that he had used performance-enhancing drugs to win the Tour de France. A good thing, Lance Armstrong had become an ultimate thing for many people, a hero, someone they looked in, and he let them down. Surprised? Not really, right? Not anymore. When we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, and it's actually not meant to be an ultimate thing, it will let us down. But I love the phrase that he coined. I think live strong is a good phrase for Christians as well. I think it sums up these last two verses pretty well. 18 and 19, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. In another version, it says, stand firm and you will gain life. You see, as Christians, we're called to endure the suffering. Not on our own. God gives us the power to do that. But when we find ourselves in times of suffering, which we will, do not be surprised when that happens. I'm always surprised myself how many Christians are surprised when they suffer. Suffering's going to come. But stand firm in him and in his strength. As Nancy Rockwell puts it, Jesus tells his friends, don't anchor your faith in the beauty of the temple, but in your ability to endure evil without flinching and without looking away. Well, as we come to, towards the end, I just want to ask a question. What are the good things in your life that you have made ultimate things? What are the good things in your life that you have made ultimate things? Stop and think for a moment. Has your career been, become something that has become more important than even your relationship with the Lord? Or maybe your portfolio, your stocks and shares, you find that your mood, your emotions are swung by the stock market more than they are by how you're relating to the Lord. Perhaps it's sports. You know, ever been in a place where sports teams let you down? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I know I have. And sometimes I find that my mood is more affected by sports than it is again by my relationship with the Lord. How about education? Perhaps you got a B on a test instead of an A, right? And you felt devastated because your self-worth was all wrapped up in being an A-grade student. I'm a straight A student. You might have turned a good thing into an ultimate thing. What about your home? Has it become more important to you than your relationship with the Lord that you are willing to be in debt because you've got to keep on top of all those changes you need to make to your home? What about a gift that you have? Have you given God the glory or is it something that you actually give yourself the glory about? What about your family? Maybe your kids have become an idol in your life. It's a good thing, but you've made them an ultimate thing and they've let you down. Or maybe a parent has let you down. Or maybe it's an ideology that you have. You've become more enthralled with an ideology than you have become with the theology of Jesus Christ and who he is. Maybe you're more wrapped up in that and actually it's going to let you down. Again, these things are not necessarily bad things. They're all very good things generally. But when they become ultimate things, they become idols in our life and they separate us from the Lord. And you see, nothing lasts forever. Well, except for one thing, right? The Lord. (laughs) The Lord lasts forever. David Polison wrote this, and it's a series of questions that might be helpful as we reflect on 
the good things and whether they become ultimate things. He says this, that most basic question which God poses to each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Questions bring some of people's idle systems to the surface. To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions or similar ones tease out whether we serve God or idols, whether we look for salvation from Christ or false saviors. God asks us to make him the ultimate thing in his life. In our life, sorry, in our lives. He asks us to surrender everything to him and he will give us life in a way that none of those things will ever be life-giving. It's the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, who remember he's teaching in the middle of Holy Week, he's heading to the cross, he's about to die. But the good news is that his death will bring life, bring life to anyone who will repent and lay down those ultimate things they've made idols, right? They've made an idol of, lay them down at the cross and say, Jesus, I choose you. You are the king of my life, not that career that I've been pursuing, not the wealth I've been pursuing, not the, um, not the, uh, uh, the money that I'm pursuing, whatever it might be. And we lay them down at his cross. Friends, this is the good news that we have to proclaim to a world that is seeing its idols crumble. And to be honest, that's been happening for thousands of years, but idols do not deliver on their promises. Whether it's a marriage that someone put all their hope in and it crumbles. Whether it's the stock markets and they suddenly take a severe dip and people lose thousands and thousands of dollars. Whether it's an ideology that lets someone down or a, a sporting hero who crashes and burns or a career where we actually lose our job perhaps. But the good news is that we have the hope that the world needs. We have the assurance that they are looking for. We know that it all ends up being okay if we put our trust in Jesus, even in the midst of suffering right now. He is the source of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. I will not let you down. And the call for us is to share this good news with others. So who will you share it with this week? knowing that God himself will give you the words to share, even if you feel like you don't know what you would say. Who will you invite into this community? Let's not waste our time, but let's continue to hold him up. And if you've never invited him into your own heart, I would encourage you to do that today and to say, Lord, I've made good things into ultimate things when you are the only ultimate thing worth serving. Will you forgive me? And will you uh, let me follow you for the rest of my life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just take a moment now, a moment of silence, to hear what you might say to us about the good things that may have become ultimate things in our lives. Lord, would you reveal those to us by your spirit? And would you help them to lay them before you now? And Jesus, we say sorry. We repent of doing that. We ask you to help us to follow you, to have you as the only ultimate thing in our life. 
that we would serve you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.